0: Welcome back, guys, to uh, neurology exam prep from Yale University neurology program. Um, my name is Safan Hakim and I have here one of our faculty, Dr. Uh, Jeff Dewey, neuromuscular and associate program director. Um, thank you so much, Jeff, for um, uh, helping us kind of d- dive into uh, muscle disorders a bit more. How are you doing?
1: Good. Thanks for having me. I love that you're doing this. So happy to help.
0: Of course. All right. So as we kind of approach muscle disorders in general, um, I would like to to pay attention to certain patterns um, uh, of distinguishing clinical features, um, patterns of inheritance, um, some systemic involvement like cardiac arrhythmias, age of onset, and just sort of the progression of um, the disorder. Um, So these are... Certain things that we can pay attention to help us distinguish from them, to distinguish them from one another on exam, and as well as in, uh, clinically. Um, with that being said, well, you know, we'll start with muscular dystrophies. Um, uh, muscle disorders might be broken down into a couple of podcasts, uh, but today we'll kind of dive deeper into muscular dystrophies. Um, so, what is dystrophy, Jeff?
1: So, in general, you can think of a muscular dystrophy as uh, a congenital. So, I mean, it's it's genetically determined. But it's a disease in which the muscle breaks down over time, and patients become progressively weaker. And usually, it's due to a structural or a core functional protein in the muscle. And so, the other feature of this is that the muscles tend not to heal when they do break down. You know, and a lot of us will go to the gym and hit the weights, and you do break down muscle fibers. But in patients with a muscular dystrophy, uh, those fibers are broken down uh, even by much less uh, intense stress, and then they don't heal as well either. So they they Accrue this damage over time and become progressively weak.
0: Excellent. And you know, connective tissue replaces muscle fibers eventually. Um, yes. mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, would you mind sharing some of the important things about Duchenne uh, muscular dystrophy?
1: Sure. So, Duchenne's is probably the most common uh, muscular dystrophy that you'll see. Uh, it's an x linked disorder. And it's generally, obviously, then most severe in males, although you can see some mild symptoms in female carriers. Uh, and it's due to a mutation in the dystrophin gene, DMD, uh, which codes for the dystrophin protein. The dystrophin protein is really important because it links the muscle cytoskeleton to the sarcolemal membrane. So it's part of stabilizing mm-hmm. the internal structures of the muscle. Uh, patients with duchens present very early. Uh, and typically, as they come out of infancy, they fail to meet their, their uh, motor developmental milestones. So they're very late to walk, in particular. And uh, when they do walk, they have uh, sort of a funny gait. So they tend to toe walk or waddle. Uh, And of course, the classic sign that you see is the Gower maneuver. Uh, And that's when Mm -hmm. uh, a child tries to stand up from the floor. And because their legs are weak, they actually get their feet under them and then use their arms to walk their body up their leg. It's a very characteristic sign. You can see it in anybody with actually proximal lower extremity weakness. But because of the age of onset, you tend to see this in young children.
0: I see. Um, Do those infants have any, like, maybe we can talk about floppy baby as we get into more of the muscular dystrophies and the ones that could apply more to that category? Um, Yeah, typically typically these
1: are are not floppy babies, which is nice, but uh, it's really around the age of two or three is when people start to notice the symptoms.
0: Okay. Um, And could you talk about maybe, like, some of the systemic uh, things that we need to be on the lookout as we see those uh, children?
1: Yeah, so uh, there are a few uh, systems involved. Uh, You might actually see some mild cognitive changes, but oftentimes they're fairly functional. Uh, The things you really have to worry about in particular are uh, dilated cardiomyopathy. Uh, This doesn't usually set on in childhood, but they actually recommend yearly cardiology evaluations beginning around age five or six, because it does come on early, and it's one of the most common causes of death. Uh, is heart failure or an arrhythmia from the dilation in the cardiomyopathy. The other issue, of course, is breathing. Uh, These children tend to have uh, hypoventilation issues, particularly in sleep, and often are on positive pressure, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation uh, in their childhood and teens. As they grow older, Mm -hmm. uh, they lose the ability to walk, typically around uh, the onset of adolescence, age 12 or 13. So you need multidisciplinary care as they get weaker and stop walking in terms of physical therapy, occupational therapy, we often have a wheelchair specialist following with these children Mm -hmm. because they, as they grow their wheelchair needs change Uh, and then they'll see cardiology Mm -hmm. and pulmonology and sometimes even orthopedics because they can develop severe scoliosis or other contractures over time.
0: I see. That's great. You've covered uh, most of the things that I was, um, you know, asking myself um the other thing is uh could you comment maybe on the age of death uh, when we typically I mean, obviously horrible to say but um kind of what the prognosis is and around when
1: um, Yeah, unfortunately this is probably one of the most fatal muscular dystrophies in terms of early death uh, and they tend to die by their early 20s early to mid 20s and usually again the cause <laughs> is either heart failure or respiratory failure
0: okay um so we can move on to Becker dystrophy.
1: Yeah, so Becker is really just a cousin of Duchenne. Uh, it comes, again, from a mutation in the dystrophin gene. Usually these are uh, less severe mutations, and oftentimes, where, whereas Duchenne's will sort of have a frame shift mutation, uh, Becker's often has an in-frame mutation, so the protein is less functional, or can even be distributed in sort of a mosaic pattern when you look on uh staining from muscle biopsies but in general it Mm -hmm. follows a similar course to duchenne it's just slower so children will will develop normally maybe until five six or seven and then they'll have um, gradual weakness and and really uh, noticeable changes in their gait again the toe walking the waddling the Gower sign Uh, they can live a much longer life and actually uh, cardiomyopathy is less common than in duchenne they still need to be monitored for it but it tends to be mm-hmm. less uh, fatal for them, especially, you know, in the 20s, and they'll they'll usually live into adulthood. You know, people can theoretically live a normal life with Becker; it just depends on the the how functional their dystrophin protein really is.
0: I see. Um, and then maybe like CK, how helpful is it, and in, in looking at uh, uh, muscular dystrophy like Duchenne?
1: So. Um, and- uh, yeah, in Duchenne is extremely helpful. Uh, it's probably the highest CK you're going to see in someone who's not in rhabdo. And they'll often mm-hmm. be 100 times the upper limit of normal. I've seen CKs in the 20s to 30,000s, um, and even more in children with Duchenne. Mm-hmm. It's not as high in Becker, but it is still very high, uh, usually at least 10 plus uh, the upper limit of normal.
0: I see. And I also came across that uh, some histopathology findings that could be helpful with segmental muscle necrosis and regeneration um, as well as like, hyper-contracted muscle fibers like you were mentioning. Um,
1: so yeah, and the, and, it, and the it, thing to remember is you oh. can actually stain for the dystrophin protein in in the, uh-huh. uh, the cell membrane. So a normal stain, you'll see a nice dark rim around the cell because the dystrophin is located at the sarcolemal membrane. In Duchenne's, that's essentially absent. And then in Becker's, it's either uh, sort of reduced or mosaic in, in its staining pattern. But as you said, yeah, you'll see in general, uh, like an H&E stain, uh, a very, what we'd say, myopathic-looking muscle fiber. So a lot of connective tissue replacing muscle tissue, as you said, some regenerating some necrotic cells, and they typically are more rounded in appearance uh, just by the nature of the disease.
0: And is there any treatment um, options that we need to be aware of for exam purposes?
1: Yeah, so... The standard of care has always been corticosteroids, uh, and it's lowish dose. dose. They usually give about 0.75 milligrams per kilogram uh, per day. Sometimes that's given daily. Uh, oftentimes it's actually given maybe on two days out of the week, uh, A, to make it easier for children and families. But then, B, there's thought that that decreases some of the side effects. There's an, a steroid analog called deflazacort, uh, which is given uh, in place of, uh, say, prednisone. And it tends to have fewer side effects as far as weight gain. Uh, mm-hmm. More recently now, there's an antisense oligonucleotide therapy called Eddie uh, The brand name is uh, Exondis 51, I believe. But it, it basically uh, alters the transcription of the dystrophin protein and skips the damaged exon. And so the protein is shorter but still partially functional. And they're developing uh-huh. now uh, therapies for other targets uh, uh-huh. along the gene as well.
0: That's great to hear. Um, that yeah. we're making some um, advancement into the therapy. Yeah, excellent. Um, that was a that was a good uh, overview. Um, how about fascist scapula humeral muscular
1: dystrophy? Uh, yeah. So this one's pretty easy to remember because it's someone named it really well. Uh, so it. <laughs> <you know. laughs> Yeah. Well, actually, you know, so most of the muscular dystrophies are great because they're either going to be symmetric proximal in their weakness, or if they're not, they're named after the muscles that get weak for the most part. Of course, there are exceptions. But uh, so fascia, humoral muscular dystrophy affects just what it sounds like. The the facial muscles, the periscapular muscles, and then the muscles that are attached to the humerus. So like mainly the biceps and triceps. Uh, some people uh, have taken to calling this fascio-scapulohumero-perineal muscular dystrophy because oftentimes the anterior compartment in the shin and the, the tibialis anterior is affected.
0: Um, great. And uh, this is an autosomal dominant uh, inheritance muscular dystrophy.
1: Correct. Yeah. And it's, um, it's an adult-onset muscular dystrophy, and that's important to remember. So this is not something you're going to see in children necessarily. And people can present mm-hmm. with this pretty late in life, actually. Uh, oftentimes, the first symptoms are in the face uh, or in the scapular region. It's pretty rare to start in the perineal region without some weakness up above. Um, but it's uh, the classic findings are what we call a transverse smile. So they're unable to elevate uh, their smile. Uh, some people will even say they have pouting lips or sort of an inability to close the mouth. Oftentimes, they'll be described as unable to close their eyes while sleeping. Uh, and a lot of patients will say things like they can't whistle or use a straw because they're Orbicularis oris is weak, so they can't purse their lips. Oh,
0: more no, no, yeah. and debilitating thing. Yeah. Not whistle-
1: the thing to remember about FSHD is you don't usually get a cardiomyopathy, but some patients rarely can get a cardiac arrhythmia. It's not as common as in some other dystrophies that I'm sure we'll talk about, but it is worth monitoring for. So I usually get a yearly EKG on these patients. Uh, the most common uh, associated system is actually uh, a lot of these patients are prone to mild mental retardation. And some can have seizures. So it's worth watching out for these things as you follow these patients. But they typically progress very slowly and have a normal lifespan, uh, although can become wheelchair-bound toward the end of life.
0: That's um, important to note. We can move on to limb girdles. And I know there are a lot of genetic variants. And we can kind of just uh, talk briefly about uh, what each variant um, would signify clinically.
1: Sure. So uh, yeah, limb girdle is a, a huge category, uh, and I don't even know the number off the top of my head. But really, a lot of uh, a lot of different variants to consider. The thing to remember is mm-hmm. this is also named the way it presents. So these are patients who will show up with uh, weakness in the limb girdles, and this is sort of what we all think of as the classic picture of a myopathy. So they have a proximal symmetric weakness. They might say they have issues with things like reaching up into cabinets combing their hair, brushing their teeth if their shoulder girdle is weak. Uh, if the hip girdle is weak, people will complain of problems going up and down stairs, standing up from a low chair without you know, having to push on the arms, or even like getting out of a, a low car uh, can be difficult mm-hmm. for them. So these are good history questions that should sort of raise your antenna for proximal weakness. Uh, What's the
0: age the draft?
1: Yeah, so the age varies a little bit. Usually it's adult onset, although some can present uh, earlier in life. Um, I think in general, they're not as early as things like Duchenne, uh, although there are some very early variants. But the ones you probably need to know about are the ones that have uh, some of the more important consequences. Not that you don't need to know about all of them, but generally it's diagnosed with genetic testing. So you just need to think about LGMD uh, and then send a genetic Mm -hmm. test in somebody like this. But there are some important associations. So uh, for instance, L, uh, LGMD, I'm use that as the abbreviation for limb girdle muscular dystrophy. So type 1B, which affects the lamin A-C protein, uh, is known for causing a cardiomyopathy. So if you diagnose someone mm-hmm. with that, you need to be watching their heart carefully. Uh, type 1C, which is a caveolin 3, is probably the younger onset. So those those do typically present in childhood uh, a little bit later than Duchenne's, but maybe around age 5 or so. Uh Type 2A, which is a calpane 3, sort of classic for causing a gluteal involvement with sparing of the quadriceps, uh, whereas type 2D, which is alpha-sarcoglycan apathy, uh, actually has sort of the opposite, so it has a pronounced quadriceps involvement. But again, it's really uh-huh. it's more a matter of having the proper suspicion for genetic testing uh, to look at exactly which gene is affected. It's very difficult to uh-huh. what you're looking at. Yeah,
0: And this is autosomal dominant pattern. Uh, okay. It depends.
1: Uh, yeah, so type one is dominant, and then and then type two is recessive. And with, within each of those, there are many subtypes, but that's how they're grouped.
0: I see. And the the variations of these genes just help us to to be on the lookout of what clinical uh, progression might be for these patients. Um, exactly. Or do they translate into therapies yet?
1: So we we don't have any therapies that are gene-specific. So it really is just a matter of giving a, a firm diagnosis uh, and then knowing what to watch out for in some of these different uh, subtypes.
0: Excellent. And then you, man- you mentioned that those are typically later in life, but the con- the congenital and the infantile onset ones, those are children that would typically have some hypotonia and generalized weakness, correct?
1: Yes. And again, you you actually see things like the Gower maneuver in these children because they are going to be proximally weak.
0: I see. Um, and is there any um, aid in diagnosis with electrophysiology, like EMG?
1: It's somewhat helpful in some of the dystrophies. In like a limb girdle type, you're probably just going to see a myopathic looking EMG. Uh, you know, we'll talk later mm-hmm. about like myotonic dystrophy, where the EMG is often diagnostic uh, because they have myotonia. But for limb girdle, not so much.
0: Okay, and then maybe like the more severe forms could have some fibrillation potentials and highly polyphysic myopathic myopathic motor units,
1: just like you said. Kind of
0: that's what would the EMG would, would look like in a myopathic yes, pattern. Is,
1: exactly. Or so the classic myopathic EMG without inflammation is uh, really very little spontaneous activity. You can see some things here or there, but the big thing is uh, early and early recruitment. So you're you're having to recruit all of your motor units. You even achieve a little bit mm-hmm. of strength and then low amplitude. So it you know it it's, it um, it sounds like the person has almost no gain, uh, or volume function of their muscle. It's just either all on or all off, but the amplitude is low across the board.
0: Great review. Um, all right. And anything else that you wanted to add for limb girdle muscular dystrophies?
1: I don't think so.
0: I'm sure there's much more, but we'll. but I think for
1: for exam purposes, I think it's probably beyond the scope of most examinations.
0: Sure. And then myotonic dystrophy, and I know you were kind of just mentioning it. I think it's a good time to to go over um, some of the clinical pearls. And I know that myotonia, cardiac conduction abnormalities, and cataracts are classic kind of uh, presenting symptoms.
1: Yeah, so... Uh, the nice thing is, again, this one's named in a good way. So myotonic dystrophy is really characterized by myotonia. And myotonia is that inability of the muscle to relax after being mm-hmm. contracted. So you you can sort of elicit this on history by people who maybe hold on to something and then have to take a second before they can release their hand. Uh, it typically uh, gets better with recurrent exercise. We call that the warm-up phenomenon. Uh, but especially mm-hmm. early on with heavy contraction, uh, from rest, it can uh, be pretty prominent. Uh, and yes, as you said, the other sort of things that people will present with are uh, cataracts. They also have uh, sort of characteristic facial changes, so the face is often sort of tall and slender. And uh, if you looked at it sort of from above, you would see it almost come to a point, uh, not you know drastically, but more so than the average uh, facial curve. Uh, it they, they do tend to have, uh, again, a weak mouth appearance, And so it appears as if they're pouting or their mouth sort of hangs open, almost like the jaw is slack.
0: And the inheritance pattern for this is autosomal dominant. Are there any particular genes that we should keep in mind?
1: Yeah. So for type 1, which is by far the most common, is a mutation Mm -hmm. of the DMPK gene. It's dystrophic biotonia protein kinase. DMPK. (laughs) Uh, And the thing that makes it interesting is it's a trinucleotide repeat. So there's uh significant anticipation across generations in this disease much like other trinucleotide repeat disorders mm-hmm. type 2 uh is a gene on chromosome 3 uh the zinc finger 9 gene and it's uh, a tetranucleotide repeat so it's a cctg instead of a ctg
0: cct could you repeat that again
1: so type 1 is ctg repeat type 2 is cctg repeat, uh-huh. C-C-T-G, repeat.
0: cctg repeat that yes this is uh uh, important to remember, and um, are there other things that kind of distinguish between myotonic dystrophy type one and type two, other than genes?
1: Uh, for the most part, honestly, you're going to see type one. It's just it's like 90 plus percent uh, more common. So I think for everything we're saying for exam purposes, you can essentially attribute to type one.
0: And then, what is the average age at onset for uh, uh, DM1?
1: So it depends on how many repeats they have. Uh, and that's, so it's kind of a, a the answer is it depends. Um, most patients, let's say it's a, it's a de novo mutation or they're the first in their family. It'll come on mm-hmm. maybe in um, early to mid adulthood, but you can see dramatic anticipation to the point that it comes on in in teenage years after a generation. I
0: see. And then, like you mentioned, there's like symmetric ptosis in those patients sometimes. Um, um, and the extraocular muscles could be weak um, and have myotonia as well. Examination, like neurological exam um, findings that we could find is um, extraocular weakness, extraocular myotonia, um, down or absent tendon reflexes, uh, and then there could be mild length-dependent peripheral neuropathy. And
1: if, so, yeah, and again, the myotonia is the thing you really want to elicit. So the, the best way to do it uh, is usually... I like to do a grip myotonium. So you have the patient grip Mm -hmm. your hand or or grip grip your fingers, and you really want them to max out their grip strength. It's important that you get a good contraction. Hold it for a few seconds Mm -hmm. and then ask them to let go and open their hand immediately. And what you'll see is for about a second, uh, they just have a little bit of difficulty releasing that grip. It's very brief, so you kind of got to be watching for it. If you do it too many times, you're going to subject them to the warm-up phenomenon and it'll go away. So it's important to get it after the first couple or you lose your chances of finding it. You can also see percussion myotonia. So if you tap on the muscle with a reflex hammer, uh, usually you use sort of the, the smaller points if you have like a tromner hammer. Uh, and you tap on the, mm. the thenar eminence, you'll see the thumb sort of abduct quickly and then slowly relax after about a second. You can also do this on the extensor digitorum in the forearm and watch the middle finger and see if there's a little bit of extensor myotonia.
0: Wow, I would have to try that out. How about, um, cardiac involvement, uh, in that as well? We would find like conduction, uh, defects, arrhythmias, and then also sudden death. Um, yeah. it could be like a manifestation of, um, muscular dystrophy.
1: Absolutely. I mean, sorry, so this, my, myotonic dystrophy. Yeah. So this is, this is the one where you really have to watch out for arrhythmias. Uh, and I, I get, uh, EKGs at this, the first time I diagnose somebody, and then every year I have them see a cardiologist. It's not uncommon to have, uh, pacemakers or uh, defibrillators implanted uh, in these patients. And most of mine who are in their 40s and 50s do because as you said, the most common cause of death is uh, cardiac arrhythmia.
0: Got it. And then other systems too that are involved that I've kind of um, came across were uh, GI tract, uh, endocrine systems, uh, and like you mentioned, the mental, m- mental deficiency, as well as like frequent miscarriages, sleep difficulties. So all those um, things that we could pay attention to as well.
1: Yeah, it really is a uh, multi-system disorder. Uh, and they actually, uh, you know, as you said, can have uh, endocrine disorders in the order of diabetes or infertility, uh, which which happens mm-hmm. as well. So it's important to ask about attempts to have children uh, and whether or <laughs> not they succeeded.
0: Um, That would be very helpful for the board examination as well. Um, And then how about electrophysiology? And I know you were mentioning it earlier. I think there are um, classic findings that we can pay attention to.
1: Yeah, this is one of those ones where you can make a really clear diagnosis for the most part with EMG. So in almost every muscle in the body, even if it's not weak, uh, what you'll hear Mm. on the needle examination uh, is is myotonic discharges at rest. Uh, so myotonic discharge sounds like a revving engine. Uh, well, some people call it a dive bomber, uh, which is maybe more accurate. Mm-hmm. But it, it'll—I've uh, done. I can try and do my impression here. <clears throat> <It> goes <laughs> so it revs up and then down. Uh, or you could think about it as a, a bomber flying over your head, where it sort of has that uh, decreasing pitch as it goes by. Um, but that's the key uh, finding that you want to hear. And you'll hear it very quickly in the needle exam. It doesn't take much sampling to find it, and that really solidifies your diagnosis.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, uh, the other things like, again, like short duration, rapidly recruiting motor unit potentials with fibrillations and abnormal spontaneous activity, which is typical, uh, pattern, um, in other muscle disorders. Yeah. Um, great. And then how about histopathology? So, um, type one fiber atrophy and then hypertrophy of type two fibers, um, small angulated fibers, ring fibers, um, and then there could be increased central nuclei with pycnotic nuclear clumps. I'm not sure what that would look like, but <laughs> those are some, um, keywords to kind of pay attention to as we're uh, going through an examination.
1: Yeah. I, I always remember the pycnotic clumps, uh, Pyknotic doesn't mean anything to me as a word. I'm sure it has a descriptive value, but really it's the clumping that you'll see, or you can also see them uh, in a little bit of a chain. But it's this idea that normally on a, on a muscle biopsy slide, the nuclei are peripheral. They're right under the sarcolemma. Uh, in, in a lot mm-hmm. of myopathic disorders, you can see a couple of centralized nuclei here or there. but Especially in myotonic dystrophy, you see these prominent clumps of multiple nuclei uh, in the center of a muscle fiber. Uh, and you know it doesn't have to be directly in the center but it's away from the edge where it should be and that's a pycnotic clump so that really is a defining feature on the histopathology so why don't we stop there and then we can pick up in the next episode with congenital muscular dystrophies and congenital myopathies
0: thank you guys for listening stay tuned for part two